0: from CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. And welcome to this live taping. We are so excited to be joined this evening by our dear friend, the incredible Professor Carol Anderson, who is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African-American Studies at Emory University. She's also the author of last year's terrific book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Now, Carol
1: joined us last October to talk about voting rights in the aftermath of the Brunovich decision, which pretty much gutted a lot of the power of the Voting Rights Act. And if any of you were there, it was a really lively conversation, really fun for us, and so it will definitely be fun for you again. She joins us now to talk about the recent mass of mass shootings, the Supreme Court's rulings against gun control, and how the politicization of guns connects to the other pretty much anti-democratic shifts that we're seeing in American society now. Welcome, Carol.
2: Ah, thank you so much for having me. I'm just looking so forward to this conversation.
0: Let me start right off, and and I have to confess that I have been waiting for this because everybody always asks me to explain the origins of the Second Amendment. And I know Carol has uh, discussed this at great length in the book, The Second. And Joanne and I actually discuss this not infrequently off camera when we're by ourselves, as historians tend to do. And I think that you both have a lot to contribute to this. And I have a third vision, and I don't think any of them are incompatible. So why don't you, Carol, start by taking us through what exactly the Second Amendment is all about.
2: So I started this research with the killing of Philando Castile. And so here you have a Black man who has a license to carry weapon with him, and the police officer shoots him dead simply because he has a license to carry weapon. And the NRA went silent. And so pundits were asking, well, don't Black people have Second Amendment rights? And I thought, Lord, that is a great question. And it was one of the rights that I had not looked at previously. So I went hunting and went all the way back to the 17th century. And in there, I mean, I was in your bailiwick. And in there, you know, I'm finding all of this fear of Black people, the fear of the enslaved, and the slave codes coming up about making sure that they were disarmed, that they did not have access to weapons. Also making sure that three Blacks didn't have access to weapons. And also finding the love of the militia and the slave patrols, because they are what protected the white community from this Black threat. And so as I'm seeing the Constitution develop, and there's the Constitutional Ratification Convention in Virginia, and and James Madison thinks he's done something, right? Because, you know, he's crafted this Constitution, and he's like, whoo, got that thing through. Lord, yes, all we got to do now is just get it ratified. And Virginia's sitting there going, nah, I'm not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. And it's Patrick Henry and George Mason, two key enslavers and anti-federalists who come at him hard because of the power of the federal government in this newly crafted constitution, and because the militia is put under the control of the federal government. And George Mason is clear, we will be left defenseless against the slave revolt because under the feds, it's going to be, we have to deal with Pennsylvania and Massachusetts who are like getting rid of slavery in their their states. And so we can't count on them. We can't trust them to send the militia down to protect us. And so they started threatening to scuttle the Constitution. And if they couldn't scuttle it, they were going to have a new constitutional convention, which was the last doggone thing James Madison
0: wanted. Pretty much anybody, Carol. <laughs> right, right, right. So 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 wait a minute. They literally were like, we're, we're out of here if you mess around with this. Oh, yeah. They were really
2: clear about that. But remember, they had played hardball before with the drafting of the Constitution itself. This is how we get the three-fifths clause. This is how we get the 20-year extension on the Atlantic slave trade. And this is how we get the fugitive slave clause. It is the South playing hardball saying, U.S., you're on your own. We don't get to protect slavery. We don't get to enhance slavery. We don't get to empower slaveholders. Then peace out. And so it was that threat again. It was that threat of dismantling the United States of America over slavery. And so when James Madison goes to that first Congress and he's crafting the Bill of Rights and one of the congressmen said he felt like he was haunted by the ghost of Patrick Henry (laughs) uh, (laughs) as he's crafting this thing, you get a Bill of Rights that when you think about it, the state cannot support a religion. You get freedom of the press. You get the right not to be illegally searched and seized. You get the right to have a speedy and fair trial. The right to a well-regulated militia for the security of a free state, that thing is an outlier in this larger bill. And that was the bribe to the South to not hold a new constitutional convention. And so sitting in this Bill of Rights is an amendment That is about denying Black people the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is about how do we contain and control this Black threat? How do we keep the white community safe from this threat?
1: I wanted to, in a sense, build off something you just said, Carol. And that is, if you think about the Bill of Rights as something that came along because people were scared of federal power right? They they were for appeasing people. It's the one thing that the anti-federalists did that was concrete that they suggested and that they got in the constitutional period at the ratification debates. They were very nervous about this new constitution was going to take all kinds of powers and they were going to lose all of these rights in one way or another. So they wanted to restrain this brand new, far more powerful government. So on the one hand, first of all, that's important to notice because The Bill of Rights is from people who already were a little bit nervous about what was coming. This brand new government makes perfect sense that they're saying, I don't know about the power of that, but equally, if not more important, if you think about in that context, what the main thing that people are thinking about is, they're not thinking, as we do today in a very modern sense, my rights, my rights, this is my right. They're thinking the government can't do this. I want this to put a wall up in front of the government. So the Bill of Rights, in a sense, is about restraining government, not about empowering citizens. And that's important because if you look at the idea of rights over the course of American history, it changes its meaning. In time, it comes to be much more individualistic. You know, these are my rights. But in the period we're looking at, the constitutional period, it's a response to a new powerful government. And it's far more interested in putting up a wall than it is in empowering people beyond what they already had and knew.
0: So do you see the second as an outlier,
1: Joanne? I guess I don't know if I see it as an outlier because I, I never thought of it that way before, because it feels to me like the same fear-born Bill of Rights moment, right? Like, oh, well, they can't take away our you know, freedom of speech. Well, they can't take away our right to a fair trial. And, and some of these are things that go back to the revolution that they were nervous about. The dynamics of that amendment, I don't think necessarily make it an outlier. But what you're suggesting, Carol, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that because of the explicitly race-centered aspect of it, an extra
2: layer that's yes. worked into that amendment. Absolutely. That's the piece for me. And I understand the fear of a standing army. I understand that that was back there. But when I'm reading through the Virginia ratification debates and I'm seeing how much George Mason and Patrick Henry are pounding on the fear of a slave revolt and the absolute fear that you could not trust the federal government to send the militia down to protect slaveholders when the revolt came. And so, this is where that dynamic is. And so, this is about how do we contain and control, not a government, but how do we contain and control these enslaved folks? How do we contain these Black folks?
0: So, Carol, is this an early manifestation of states' rights?
2: That is a great question. It really could be. It was this fear that you could not trust the federal government. But that tension had been there, like, for so long. I mean, that tension was there with the Articles of Confederation, you know, that they didn't want a strong central federal government. And so you had each of these individual states acting like separate actors. And that thing was absolutely unworkable. I think one way of thinking
1: of that, too, is kind of relates back to what I just said, which is... It's not so much, hey, states, you have more power. It was scary national government. You're going to have limited power, right? And it depends on how you're going to use that. Speaking as someone who works in early America on the founding period, the degree to which people are scared of things or talking about things or using words differently in ways that suggest things that are happening back then mean something really different from the way people interpret them today. A well-regulated militia. That's very explicitly about the fact that in that period, a standing army is like the ultimate threat of a free country, right? And there's a new government, it's going to be powerful, and nobody really knows how it's going to work. So yeah, you know, we have to really be able to defend our militias. That would have been, these local militias would have been the equivalent of armies that could stand up against a tyrannical national
0: government. Of course, they were all over-reading the Greeks. And one of the the things that this accomplishes uh, by creating well-regulated militias is it sort of harks back to the old Greek system, but it also says we don't have to come up with the money to put an army in the field. And we proved in the revolution that we couldn't actually do that. So I'm over here being an economic historian type going, well, maybe they were just cheap. Is that part of it? Or was that just an excuse for the ideology?
2: I think that part of what we're seeing is, one, is that that militia Wasn't really effective in fending off a professional army. There were just these incredible reports about the militia not showing up when George Washington really (laughs) needed them to, or the militia taking off running when George Washington really needed them to stay and fight. So, this was one of the reasons why Madison put the control of the militia, the arming, and the training of the militia under the feds to beef that up, to get some kind of coherence and organization behind it. But what the anti-federalists saw was that you now have the federal government having control of these militias. And what does that mean? For some, it meant that it means that we're really moving towards a standing army. What it meant for the slaveholders was that we will not have control over our own state militia if the Fez are in full control of this thing, when the enslaved come after us. So one of the things that I really lay out in the book, The Second, was the role of anti-Blackness in driving the Second Amendment. That fear of how do we protect the white community from these folks who had the Stono Rebellion from these folks who who had numerous rebellions in Virginia and South Carolina? How do we defend ourselves? Whereas the militia would take off running, you couldn't count on them during the, the Revolutionary War, you could count on them to put down a slave revolt. They were really good and really effective at that.
0: Okay, so you two have convinced me that the second is about walling off the Federal government from hurting people's rights or from defending white southerners against their black neighbors. And then, of course, that's overturned in 2008 by Heller, the Heller decision we'll get to, and nothing happened in between. Is that right, Carol? (laughs) Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I love setting Joanne up like that. She does, she I was about was to happening. say, I, I am having. so
1: enjoying watching Heather <laughs> do that to someone else. I'm sorry, Carol. but I, it, I'm always- did the, warn, the, the yeah.
2: warn me. You didn't warn me.
1: She does almost every week you do that, Heather. So then this happened and everyone went home, right, Joanne? And well, Joanne's
0: no, over there Heather. like, no,
2: Franklin Beers, Franklin Beers. Beers. <laughs> there was so much that happened happened in between then and Heller. One of the things that you continue to see happening is the push to disarm Black folk, regardless of their their legal status. So when they were enslaved, they could not have arms. When they were free Blacks, they could not have arms. After the Civil War, you get the Black Codes and one of the key elements in the Black Codes is disarming
0: the the free people. Could you walk us through some of that? Because you have all these soldiers who go home and they're trained soldiers and they have their guns and now they have civil rights and by 1870, they're going to have voting rights. Rights. What happened? (laughs)
2: And so, again, what you see is coming out of of Reconstruction. You see this language, this fear of armed Black people who are strutting around, acting like they're citizens, acting like they're full-blown American citizens, acting like they're human beings. And it's like, we can't have this. And so you get the rise of these neo-Confederate governments that come in that Andrew Johnson had basically provided amnesty to. And they implement black codes and black codes were a way to try to reinstall slavery by another name to control the labor of the free people, but also to control their lives and also to disarm them because they've got these guns. And one of the things is like when folks know they're free, they're like, I'm free. And and you want to strip them of that freedom. They're like, we've got to take the arms away from these really dangerous, violent black people. And so you continue to get the language of violent, criminal, dangerous happening when it comes to Black folk. So, literally, what did that look like? So you got these white domestic terrorists, such as the Ku Klux Klan and and such as the Red Shirts and the White Camellias, who are terrorizing these Black folks. The the slaughter. Carl Schurz's basically travelogue of atrocities as he looks at the conditions in the South after the Civil War from like mid-1865 to December 1865. And you just see the bodies being piled up, being burned, being hung, being dismembered. I mean, you just see just torture and violence raining down on this Black community. Because Black folks are standing up. Black folks believe that they have rights and so i i saw these these missives coming out of of the black churches talking about don't we have our second amendment rights and response was no 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 it's like amy winehouse you know so we're switching generations here but it was amy winehouse going no 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 and so you hear these plaintive wails going up to the freedmen's bureau going we have our second amendment rights and and the freedmen's bureau is like Ah, this violence is a lot. I mean, it is a lot. And we just don't have the power to stop it.
1: And America, you know, has a long tradition of violence as political repression and really no response. And the other thing worth remembering here is that on a local level, the way that this kind of violence works is that if you have some really over-the-top, nasty, violent, horrible punishments not only are they punishing and and destroying bodies and lives, but they stand there as repressive reminders, right? You don't want to do what we just punished that person for doing. So, you know, you can have all your claims you want about your rights. You're not going to want to demand them after you see these sorts of things.
2: So after the Colfax massacre in Louisiana, which the U.S. Supreme Court then overturned the FORCE Act and said, no, the the federal government cannot stop white domestic terrorism because these are private acts and the FORCE Act can only go against state acts. And then after the Hamburg Massacre in 1874 in South Carolina, again, a slaughter, President Ulysses S. Grant was just beside himself. And he said, you know what these states all have in common? It's not Christianity, it's not civilization, it is the right to kill Negroes, basically without any accountability and without any consequences. I paraphrased his last piece, but he was talking about being able to slaughter Black folks without accountability, without consequences.
0: When you talk about the taking away of guns, Carol, Is that part of what's driving the concept of Black Americans and Indigenous Americans in the same period as criminals, the idea they're criminals? You have to construct criminals in order to take their guns away?
2: What I'm seeing is the need to construct them as violent and as criminal and as a threat in order to justify what's being done to them, in order to justify enslaving them, in order to justify lynching them, in order to justify removing them from their
1: land. I was about to say, (laughs) taking their land, right? Right. Well, they're horrible, they're violent, right? Right. They're savages, they're gonna kill us. And so we're defending ourselves by pushing them out and taking their land. It makes you the
2: sort of virtuous I'm defending myself person. It's a linguistic twist
0: that is really powerful even today. I was going to say, I hate how much this echoes. I just hate how much this echoes. So what <laughs> is going through your head, Heather? What, what yes. echoes are you talking about? The idea that, for example, we in America have tended to talk about young Black Americans and young Indigenous Americans as adults from extraordinarily young ages, whereas white guys can be children. I mean, when we talked about Donald Trump Jr. as a child, and it's like, wait a minute, isn't he like in his 40s? And then we've got, you know, a 14-year-old who is killed as an adult. It's like that whole sort of reordering of American society.
2: For me, one of the things about the role of anti-Blackness is that once you have defined Black folks as criminals, as a threat, as inherently violent, then adding guns makes that violence exponentially. They
0: become an exponential threat. And obviously we haven't gotten to the present yet, but you know, we're not talking about it all is women. And um, you had some wonderful examples in your book of women who stand their ground.
2: I'm going to go more contemporary now with women standing their ground. Think about Marissa Alexander, who was the Black woman in Florida around about the same time as Trayvon Martin. And she had been a victim of domestic violence, and she had just had a baby, and her partner came at her, threatening her. She's running for her life. She gets the gun out of her car in the garage and goes back into the house and shoots a warning shot to tell him to back off. She didn't shoot him. She shot a warning shot. She got hit with a 20 year sentence. So clearly in a stand your ground state where you have documented domestic violence, a black woman protecting herself by and her baby, sh- and her baby by shooting a warning shot. She didn't have that right to, to defend herself. And then I juxtapose that to George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, where again, a stand your ground state, where you have Trayvon who is a child, he's 17, but in the media, he gets thugified. He gets heavier, taller, darker, more malicious. And you have a grown man who sees this black child and says, ah, threat to my community. Zimmerman takes a loaded weapon and stalks this child through the neighborhood. But the way that it plays out is that Zimmerman, the grown man with the loaded gun, is the one who was fearful. And Trayvon was the threat. And so killing him was okay because he was a threatening, vicious, thugified, drug-smoking, dangerous Black man. That was the way that it played out in the thugification of Trayvon Martin.
1: For more Cafe History content, check out Time Machine, a weekly column by our editorial producer, David Kurlander,
0: inspired by each Now and Then episode. You can receive the Time Machine articles through the free Cafe Brief email. Sign up at cafe.com slash brief. I mean, one of the things that jumps out to me here for all of this work is it seems to me we are in different periods constructing a vision of America as being about one guy with all these rights defending himself and theoretically his family from that dangerous other. And that, of course, brings us to this current moment, which I think, Joanne, that's fair to say that that's kind of what was going on in the American South in the 1850s, right? This fending yourself off from the dangerous other. Yeah, well, yeah, it
1: becomes very important in a sense. It's part of your justification for being violent and aggressive in attacking is if you define it as being defensive, right? Well, Mm -hmm. they're out to get me in some way. They're coming, you know, I remember... Mm -hmm. In my most recent book, there's someone who reaches out to Masons and says, you know, look, we're the Masons and we're all over the place and we're a brotherhood and we could talk to each other and We're all we over can- the place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe he didn't put it that way. <laughs> That's my my soul. No, I get paraphrase. it. I get it. Yes. paraphrase. I know <laughs> and uh, they're all they are all over the place. And and you know, we, we are true to each other and we could talk to each other and we can, you know. Sort of bring down the tone of things. This is like, you know, 1858 or nine. Mm. And someone responds to the letter in which this person is pleading and says, I mean, are you really kidding? You think I'm going to listen to this? You guys are about to come into my home and burn down my house and take my family. Mm -hmm. I don't care. You know, why am I listening to you? This is life or death. Right now, at that point, that's not happening. But that person who who responds is totally in, you know, defense moment, so anything goes. And sometimes that's the best way to justify violence. And it's not necessarily that people think, time to justify violence. I think I'll make myself be defensive. But that dynamic is really important. You know, you always want to depict yourself as the victimized, virtuous person under
2: attack. And thus, anything that you do is justifiable. And to me, this is why when we're seeing the horrific evolution of the Second Amendment. So it was bad enough as its anti-Blackness core continues through with the well-regulated militia. But watching the Heller decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in 2008. So Heller comes out of Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. had really strict gun safety laws that dealt with how you had to maintain your gun within your own home, because they knew that there was lots of violence in the home with weapons. And you had this case then where the U.S. Supreme Court looks at this and says, you know, this U.S. Supreme Court cherry-picked some history and came up with this founding father's individual right to bear arms. And and anybody who does the real work in this period knows that that Second Amendment was about the well-regulated militia. It wasn't about an individual right to bear arms. But now the U.S. Supreme Court, based on bad history, has created a judicial standard that you have this individual right to bear arms. But because that was Washington, D.C., it dealt with on a federal basis. And so then the McDonald decision in 2010 dealt with Chicago. And then that made it across the United States. But what this individual right to bear arms, when you read through those decisions, what they keep harping on is that you have the right to self-defense, It is the right to self-defense. So it's crafting a really hostile world where you have to, when you're outside of your home, when you're inside your home, you've got the castle doctrine, defend yourself. When you're outside your home, anywhere you are, which is part of stand your ground, anywhere where you have a right to be and you perceive threat, you have the right to defend yourself. So this Ratcheting up of the fear of being in American society, that you have to always be on guard, uh, that you always have to know that you are under threat. And then, is the way that this society defines threat. So, after Uvalde, right, the, the slaughter of those children and the two teachers in Texas, when folks are like, so let me see if I get this right. He turned 18 and he had immediate access to AR 15s. And so Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, was like, don't talk to me about our laws. What about Chicago? What about Chicago? And so, (laughs) right, Chicago. Ian Haney Lopez talks about dog whistle politics. That is dog whistle politics. Think about all of those black folks there in Chicago who are violent. They have this huge homicide rate. And it's that imagery of the slaughter, the imagery of Black violence, the imagery of Black threat. Think about Bernard Goetz in New York City in 1984, I want to say it was. And he was on the subway and there were Black teenagers who asked him if he had $5 or if he had a cigarette or something like that. And he pulls out a gun and he shoots all of them. I remember. Yes. I remember too. yes. Yes, and and you got this thing where he became a hero because he took on the threat of these black teenagers who were unarmed, but he dealt with that threat and he walked, you know, the jury said, yeah, you had the right to be afraid. What was
1: your response, Carol, and also Heather, when the decision came down about guns and that series of decisions? Carol did you have a particularly distinctive oh. other than strong response you know as how did you respond as a person who works on this
0: the New York State the, the Bruin decision
2: mm-hmm. yeah I thought a couple of things one is that given where you had the Republican National Committee, the head of it Rona Romney McDaniel uh, saying that January 6th, was legitimate political discourse. So that violence was legitimate political discourse. And then when you think about Reuters, Reuters did that analysis of the threats going into election officials and election workers uh, from the 2020 election, and how many times you had the Second Amendment invoked as the way to deal with these folks who stole the election. It's
0: Um, It's right on Reconstruction.
2: So seeing the New York decision, I went, this is further down that slope. I've talked about how American democracy is under a full-blown assault. The land assault is the attack on our voting rights. Um, And so we're seeing state after state after state implement more barriers, more hurdles for access to the ballot box based on the big lie that this was a stolen election. The second assault is the sea assault, where we're getting the wiping away of American history, the teaching of real American history, where you don't talk about slavery. You don't talk about the genocidal removal of indigenous people where you don't talk about xenophobia and the anti-immigrant strain coming through American society. And the
1: separation of
2: church and state, apparently. <laughs> okay. You don't talk about any of that. No, you, you made some stuff up that separation of church and state wasn't even in the Constitution. That is the sea assault. When you wipe away American history, then you can craft your own self-serving narrative that deals with the relationship of people to power, And that deals with who's in and who's out. And then to me, there is the air assault. And that air assault is the loosening of these gun laws. You know, we already saw it before the Supreme Court decision in Texas and in Georgia, where you could get permitless carry, where you didn't have to have any real training. And then you have the Supreme Court's decision that basically says you've got the right to carry a weapon. Anywhere you are, that isn't sensitive. And we don't think of a lot of places that you're defining as sensitive as being really sensitive. And so when you link that in with the political violence that has already been demonstrated against election workers and already demonstrated in January 6th, we are in a heap of trouble. That's what I thought.
0: I agree with the idea we're in a terrible crisis here. But one of the things that was interesting about the Bruin decision, which came down at the end of June and overturned a New York state law about whether or not people had access to guns under certain circumstances, is that New York promptly passed a whole slew of far tighter regulations than were there before. And so did New Jersey. And when you combine that with the fact that The governor uh, Newsom in California has all of a sudden been really ramping up California doing whatever it wants out there. I think today he announced that they are going to be manufacturing their own insulin. And of course, going to be a, a state where people can continue to get abortions. And it really makes me wonder, and to take us back to where we started, about how this moment is going to play out. That is when the, the Supreme Court that we have now, which is, has been utterly radicalized with these six people from the Federalist Society who, who want to throw everything back to the states, you know, they're clearly trying to kill business regulation and the protection of civil rights and, and a basic social safety net. But at the same time, just like in the years before the Civil War, What that means is that states can do whatever they want. And New York has just basically said, hey, we're really cracking down on gun ownership. So has New Jersey. California has said, hey, we're going to have abortion rights out here. And when you think about this moment, dear God, doesn't that look like the 1850s? And and the difference between then and now is that then the enslavers, the large enslavers who basically ran the U.S. economy were all in the South. So they were like, you know, we'd love to just go make our own country because we're the ones with all the cash. And although it wasn't really cash, it was property and all that. But now it's the blue states that are the economic engines. And I don't think those red states are going to say, yeah, it's OK if you go off and do your own thing. I think they want to have their minority rule, not to create their own little minority fiefdom, but to impose it on the majority. And this is an entirely new moment. And that dynamic of of, we're focusing on the states who aren't going to have rights, But what about the states that are going to have expanded rights? And how does that play out? Does somebody in Mississippi go, hey, Massachusetts is looking pretty good over there. And then somebody in Mississippi says, well, you can't go because we need workers. We've been there before, too. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. We were there with the Great
2: Migration. When Black folks were fleeing the South because of the lynching, because of the lack of education, because of the lack of economic opportunity, there were cities that were passing laws saying that Black folks could not leave for economic opportunity. They couldn't leave to get a better job.
0: And the same was true after 1876, where there were literally labor conventions that said a white guy couldn't hire a Black person away from a neighbor. We talk
2: about how capitalism is held up on high, this enshrined thing. One of the key laws of capitalism is labor has the right to take itself where it can get the best deal, except when you get these rules put in place saying, no, you can't leave. And so what they were doing during the Great Migration was saying, if you try to leave, we will criminalize you, we will incarcerate you, and then we will put you basically on a work farm. So it was, we're going to extract your labor eight ways to Sunday, come hot hell or high water. We're going to extract your labor and you cannot leave for the American dream. People not being able to leave states or go to
1: other states is the most obvious thing in the world, which is abortion, right? Abortion. And, and that there we have basically, in, in one way or another, in some states, they're talking about making it so that you can't leave to go to another state to get an abortion, right? Which is, first of all, remarkably, I don't even know, I don't have a word actually for that as, as to what that means and what that entails and how anyone could possibly do that. But, you know, it it's like the Fugitive Slave Act. Slaves would escape from the South. They would go North. Basically, civil northerners have to return those people to the South. And law enforcement has to help in that process. You can't help someone continue to escape. So what you have there in the 19th century is people fleeing from one state to another state for freedom and people in the North being told, sorry, I know you like that kind of freedom here, but it doesn't matter. We're gonna take that back. We're in this moment, right? Where women might go from a state that doesn't allow abortion to a state that does. And you know what, what we hear these people talking about essentially saying, no, I'm sorry, like you can't go to another state and if you're there, Will you be allowed to have an abortion? Like, how will this work? We've talked before, Heather, you, you and I, about how sometimes I'm the person like screaming with my hair on fire. Th- this puts I think me all in the historians screaming are right now. I, that, well, yes. that is
0: true. Yes. This this yes. is a
1: this is a screaming with my hair on fire. Yes, kind of moment because even though I understand the logic of it, and we've seen it coming bit by bit, and as historians, we could predict parts of it, living through it. Uh, and watching it happening, it sucks. sucks. It totally sucks. sucks. I wasn't going to quite say that, but I'll take it. I'm it. sorry, it's an unfortunate, through, it it's an
0: unfortunate yeah. moment in our
1: You know that's how I always, right? I'm always like, you know, it's unfortunate that <laughs> it does suck. It does.
0: So we should oh sort of bring God.
1: things to a close. But part of what I want to say here relates to much of what was said. And that is um, particularly in relation to this recent stream of Supreme Court's cases It's easy for the implications and impact of some of this stuff to seem invisible, right? In in history, when we look back, we have to look for it and then we can see it. Or in this case, it would have been easy for this to vanish and we wouldn't know about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I always say to people, we're, we're at this moment where the implications and the impact matter beyond the beyond, right? That you need to be aware of what's going on, thinking about the implications of what's happening and thinking about real history and and what happened in the past and how that can actually inform what might happen going forward. We really need to be alert and aware, and you just used the word active. We need to be activists to deal with this vision that's being sent out into the world about a kind of America that the majority isn't
0: necessarily on board for. Let's, let's hand you the last word, Carol. What should we think about the second and what should we do to try and at least as a historian, I'm suggesting that we need to get back to a pre-Heller understanding of the second. But there was more to it in your book. You actually thought that the second, I believe, as I wrote to you after I read it, that you were making a much larger argument about American society when you wrote about the second.
2: Yes. And and that argument deals with the way that anti-Blackness is so embedded in the way that we operate in this nation. So it is the way that that insurrection that happened on January 6th was basically provoked by saying that those people in Atlanta, in Detroit, in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia, stole the election from good, honest, hardworking white folk. And so because they stole it, we have to take our country back. That kind of anti-Blackness that delegitimizes the citizenship and the humanity of folks who live here, who are American citizens, is so profound. It has major implications and repercussions for this democracy. We are teetering because we have not dealt with the anti-Blackness. Part of what I've also argued about the Second Amendment, the reason why we don't have real gun control laws, real gun safety laws, laws. yes, is because of that fear that I have to defend myself. So I think about Jonathan Metzl's book, Dying for Whiteness, where he does a study and he finds that In rural Missouri, folks who have had gun violence in their families are in a a support group and they're talking about they don't want gun safety laws because those people from St. Louis will come down here and try to take everything that we have. This is the only thing that we have to defend ourselves and defend our property. When we have that kind of fear coursing through this society, when we have that kind of dehumanization coursing through the way that we handle voting laws, the way that we handle the basic right to vote, we are in trouble in this democracy. So it requires us to have real history so we can understand the way that anti-Blackness has influenced and affected American society. And so that we can begin to dismantle that anti-Blackness and really live into the fullness of this nation.
0: Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. That's cafe.com slash history.
1: That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener, the Cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tatishore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network.